please open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter. As you're finding your way there, it goes without saying that a large portion of our lives is spent waiting. Waiting for a new job, waiting for a mate, in some cases waiting for a date, (laughs) waiting for the end of pain, relief from pain, be it physical or psychological pain, emotional pain, waiting for a diagnosis. It is true that often this waiting is made more difficult by the apparent disinterest of God in us during our periods of waiting. F.B. Meyer wrote this about God's delays in meeting our needs. God's delays are not God's denials. Rather, God's delays are designed to form more fully the person of Christ in us. The moment we receive Jesus, He comes to live in our lives. But maturing takes time. And waiting contributes to our becoming more mature. Decades ago, an experiment was done by a group of child psychologists. They got a group of about 20 preschoolers in a room, and they had been interacting with these children before, so they were not unfamiliar with the psychologists. And the experiment was to see how mature the children were as it related to self-control. So they put a large bowl of candy in the middle of a table in the room, and they told the children, children, we're going to leave for a while, and while we're away, you do the work that we're leaving for you to do, but don't eat the candy until we return. They left after having gotten an agreement from the children that they understood the instructions. They had these two-way windows, and they were watching the children. They were gone for about 20 minutes, and one by one, the children would steal up to the table and begin to eat the candy. When they did come back at the end of the period of examination, there were two out of the 20 who did not eat the candy. They followed this test group into young adulthood, and what they discovered was there was a direct correlation between the ability of these people as preschoolers to restrain themselves from going for the candy and how well they functioned as adults in life. God leaves us in His waiting room for a purpose. We know what that purpose is because the Bible is very clear that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And in Romans 8.29, the verse which follows that very familiar verse is an explanation of what His purpose is. Simply put, is that we become like Christ, who learned obedience through what He suffered. Think of the way God worked through causing people whom we admire and are called to copy, actually, in Scripture. Abraham, the man who is held up as the great man of faith, and his wife, Sarah, waited 25 years 
for the fulfillment of the promise of God that they would have a son. This son would be the progenitor of a whole race of people and then would be a blessing to the entire world. Twenty-five years is a long time to wait. And during that quarter of a century, they were tested, probably wondering. We know they wondered to a degree. We don't have to go into the details. Read the story yourself in the book of Genesis. Fascinating story. And then what about Joseph? Joseph, a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah. Joseph, the son of Jacob. He had ten older brothers. You know the story. They sold him into slavery. He went to a nation which was totally foreign to him in every way, culturally, religiously, linguistically. Everything was different. And he must have wondered repeatedly, why, Lord? Why has this happened? He was tested time and time again, and he overcame the testing. In the book of Psalms, the 105th Psalm, tells us this very important information. That God sent Abraham, excuse me, he did send Abraham too in the promised land at the age of 75. But he sent Joseph in to slavery. On the surface of things, we would conclude that it was his brothers who sold him there. But God sent him there for something more important than his own comfort. He sent him there to save the nation of Israel. His father Jacob later became Israel to save the nation of Israel from a famine that God knew would be coming soon. And the result was that Joseph was used mightily of the Lord. It was painful for Joseph. Read Psalm 105 to discover just how painful it was for him. Then Moses, Moses, at the age of 80, the Lord made him wait 80 years, 40 of which, the last Forty of which were in a desert in a foreign land, Midian, and he was tending sheep. Quite a come down from being a prince of Egypt the first 40 years of his life. But God used him, my opinion, greater than anyone else than Jesus who's ever lived. Amazing. We are in debt, definitely, to Joseph, to Abraham, and to Moses. Thank God they learned how to wait. It wasn't easy, but they understood what God was about in their lives. David, the great king, at the age of about 17 or 18, a teenager, faced off with Goliath, and he won a great victory in the name of God. He knew full well the victory was not his doing, but God's doing. He made it abundantly clear to the man he faced off against, this giant of over nine feet in height, Goliath, And he made it known also to Israel. He didn't take credit for it. An amazing young man. He was told prior to that by God through the prophet Samuel that he would become king in the place of Saul. He did what he did in confrontation with Goliath. And then one would think he would have been elevated and the people loved him. They had a song that they had put together. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. He was lauded by the people, loved by the people, which made Saul the king very jealous. And therefore the result of that was that for the next 12 
14 years, he was a fugitive. He was on the run. He was public enemy number one as far as the king of Israel was concerned. And then at the age of 30, all his waiting came to an end. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? Have you been in God's waiting room for 25 years or 13 years as Joseph was? Maybe 20 for Joseph, really? Or maybe 13 years as David was? Have you been in God's waiting room? Jesus was in God's waiting room. Do you think Jesus could have accomplished what he needed to accomplish when he was 20 instead of 30? Yeah, he could. He was equipped. But it was not God's time for him to do what he was to do. So he waited. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the Bible tells us that God the Father said to Jesus and to those who could hear, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It was a high watermark for Jesus. He was raring to go, I'm sure. And the Bible says... In the book of Mark, chapter 1, it's a very brief description of what happened after the baptism of Jesus. I want to read it to you. Listen to this. It says, Immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to Him. The word impelled is the very same word that Mark uses in the same chapter of his gospel when he describes how Jesus cast demons out. It's the word which speaks of force. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, forced Jesus. He cast Jesus out into the desert. When I learned that decades ago, I wondered why did the Holy Spirit have to in effect, forced Jesus into the wilderness. But remember what had just happened and what was about to happen. What had just happened, Jesus had been named publicly as the Son of God. And then He knew if He went into the desert, there was a part of Him in His humanity. He didn't sin in this regard, but there was probably the thought, I'm ready to go and I don't want to go through 40 days of fasting in the desert and being tempted by the devil. He knew what that was going to be like. But Jesus did it anyway. Forty more days of waiting. And how important was that to the accomplishment of His mission? Incredibly important. Now, I know you're not Abraham or Sarah. You're not Joseph or Moses or David. You're not Jesus. But if you know Jesus... Are you listening? If you know Jesus, He's in you. That's not just theological doublespeak. That's the truth. He lives in you. And He has the power to give you the strength to wait until God is ready to call you out of the waiting room. Let's look now at this passage of Scripture to learn how we are to deal with with God's delays. Two simple statements. We're not to deal with the delays of God by complaining against God, nor are we to take matters into our own hands. Rather, we are to cooperate with God. 
as we look at these times of waiting in our lives. So let's begin with verse 27. Rather than read the entire passage, I'm just going to make application and give insight as we go through these verses. The first idea of not complaining is given to us in verses 27 and 28. God's people are the ones who file this complaint. These are not people who don't have any acquaintance with God. They're people who are the children of God. If you know Jesus, you know what the Bible says about that. But as many as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So, if we know the Lord, we are His children. Are we not? Yes, we are. Have you ever complained, by the way, to God about stuff? Anybody here has never complained about stuff to the Lord? The Bible commands us in the book of Philippians chapter 2, do everything without complaining. That would not be in the Bible if it were not a possibility for us. In verse 27, verse the part, first part, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? These are names of the people of God. Jacob and Israel, two names for the same person, if you know the story. It's the people of God. The God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob slash Israel. And look at what they complained to God about. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes notice of my God. Let's pause just a moment. They had the order wrong in their lives. They had themselves at the center of their lives instead of putting the Lord at the center of their lives. Notice that? My way, what is due to me, that is the mantra of people who don't know God through Jesus Christ. It's all about me. It's not about us. It's about Him. And when we get that order in correct position, we're one step closer to dealing properly with the delays that God permits in our lives. They complain here of God's incompetence. My way is hidden from the Lord. And they had come to the place in their dealing with their delays that they said, it's a fixed and settled matter. God is not going to do anything to deliver me from my waiting period in life. You might be in such a situation today. Are you in a situation like that? Where you have prayed, and you have prayed, and you have fasted maybe, and you prayed some more, and there is no apparent response to you, and you're complaining now to the Lord. Also, they complained about His insensitivity. He's not aware. If He's aware, He doesn't care about the situation in which I find myself. He's, my way is hidden from Him. He doesn't give notice. It escapes notice from Him. Well, hardship is part of God's plan for our lives as His children. In the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, the Bible says, Endure hardship as discipline. Hardship is a way 
of God's displaying His glory through us while we wait. Remember, what is God's purpose for us? It is that we become like His Son, Jesus. And He does not leave us to our own methods or our own devices to become such people. He gives us the Spirit of God to come and dwell us. And we wait. And we are conformed more fully to the image of Christ. The story of Jesus receiving word from some of His very close friends, Martha and Mary, about another close friend of His, their little brother Lazarus. He was not a child. He was a man by this time. And they said, our brother is sick. And he's very sick. That's all they said. They don't say, come Jesus. They assumed because of the relationship which they had with Christ and the way they knew He cared for their brother. In fact, they knew He loved them and and Lazarus, that Jesus would come. But Jesus thought about it. And then He announced to His apostles, He said, Lazarus is really sick. He's going to fall asleep. And he had no meaning in that that would indicate he was thinking about physical sleep. He was talking about, he's going to die. They didn't get it. Initially, he explained it to them. And then they understood what he was saying. And then Jesus says, we're going to hang out here a while. We're not going to go and see what's going over there in Bethany. It's a two-day journey, and we're going to stay here in Galilee for a little while. And so they did. They got to Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Judea. And when they got there, there was knowledge of their coming. Word had made it to the village and to the household of Martha and Mary. And Martha dropped everything. She'd been grieving with her sister and others. And she hurried to greet Jesus. And the first words out of her mouth were these words. Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened to our brother. He would not have died. If you know anything about Martha, and I'm not trying to be ugly about Martha, but she probably didn't say that meekly. She probably maybe wagged a finger in Jesus' face as she said it. She was very bold in the way in which she related to the Lord. Had Jesus come immediately, and Lazarus not died, which he did, would Jesus' power have been displayed as it turned out to be displayed in that situation? No. Why? Because Jesus called Lazarus back from the dead. If he had gone earlier, would Martha and Mary's comfort level have sunk as low as it did? With the death of their brother. No, it would not. But God had something more important in mind. Because when He spoke to His apostles about the impending death and the sickness that was already upon Lazarus, He said, this sickness is not unto death, although Lazarus died physically, but it's for the glory of God. Look, when I find myself in God's waiting room, and you do as His child, He is not being incompetent. He is not being insensitive. He knows where you are. You have not eluded Him in His consciousness. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. 
He knows who you are as His child. He loves you. God's people complain because they had the wrong ideas about God's nature. Our problem with God is we just don't know Him. That's why we have problem with these periods of waiting in our lives. These people didn't really know the Lord, or if they hadn't known Him, they had forgotten who He was. Look at verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God? What are they saying here? Our God is eternal. Our God is immutable. That is to say, He is the same wherever He is intersected, not just in history, but in eternity. Our God does not change. Our Savior, Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible reiterates this over and over again. Our God is an everlasting God. He is the Lord. And the word Lord is that name which God gave Himself for the first time in conversation with Moses when He was speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. And Moses asked Him, Who are you? So they may tell those who I am sent to who you are. And He said, Yahweh is My name. And this name means I will be what I will be. In other words, I am just right for any situation in which I find myself. So, God says to them, the Lord is everlasting God. And He is the one who is able to do anything that we face that needs correcting in our lives. And He concludes by saying, the Creator of the ends of the earth. If it's not enough that your God is immutable, He's eternal. It's not enough that your God is personal and more powerful than anything you can ever imagine. He's the one who created, He hung, hang, hung the, hanged rather the stars in the universe. And He's the one who knows all there is about all things. Our God is a sympathetic God. That's what this text says. Look at it. Not only does He not become weary or tired, His understanding is inscrutable. Now, what does that mean? Looking at the word understanding, that could be understood that that word is talking about these attributes of God. Everlasting God, Lord, and Creator of the earth. But that's not what it means. The reason I can say that, I've done the study on the word, and the word itself has to do with being understanding in the sense of being sympathetic. We do not have a high priest who cannot identify with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way like we have, yet without sin. You think you've been in a waiting room? You think you are now? I'm not making light of your situation. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He went through the very same sort of thing in His life. He's been tested in every way as we have, yet without sin. And here's something to hold tightly to. The Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Your heart may be broken today. He's near to you. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. We've got a sympathetic God. He's not indifferent towards your pain, your grief. He is a sovereign God. We've already seen that. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. 
Well, let's move on to the alternative to complaining. We can cooperate with God. Cooperating with God is necessary because we get weary and weak. Are you tired? Some of you are really tired. I'm not talking about physically. I mean, you're, you're just tired. You've carried a burden a long time in your life. It's weighing you down. Let's look at what the Scripture says in verse 29. He gives strength to the weary. The word weary means someone who has collapsed in failure under the pressure of the weight of life. Sound familiar? What does it say? He gives strength to such people who have just been crushed by the experiences of life. It goes on to say, in vigorous young men... Well, excuse me. I skipped the last line of verse 29. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. This means none of us has the inherent power to deal with these pressures which come into our lives. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but Christ lives in us. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us from the interior of our lives. Jesus is our cooperating King who lives in our lives. Though youths, this says in verse 30, grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. The word use is a word which was used to describe the kind of person who was selected by a panel, if you will, of people who were selecting those who would participate in the Olympics used outside the New Testament, the Greek translation of the... rather, outside the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament yields that piece of information. And vigorous young men, this was a word which was used to describe young men of fighting age, eligible for military service. We're talking about young people in their prime. You may be a young person. We have a lot of young people here in our church, thank God. And you're in your prime. But be prepared. The Lord will allow you, as you follow Him, to face some trials in your life. And we know that we're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And we're to let endurance have its perfect work in our lives so that we might be mature, lacking nothing. The purpose, I reiterate, is so that we can grow and mature. And look at verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain you strength. This word wait carries with it the dual meaning of hope. And that's not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is hope that is based upon the character and promise of God. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's faith is what it is. Hope and rest are both included in this word for wait. Our role in cooperating is to wait expectantly. In Psalm 37, 7, the psalmist and the Holy Spirit cooperate to give us another insight into what this waiting is like by choosing another word. Rest in the Lord, the Bible says in Psalm 37, 7, and wait expectantly. Wait expectantly for Him. Eagerly wait. 
And the word is a word which was used to describe a woman writhing in pain in childbirth. That woman writhed in pain. We have many women here today who have given birth, in some cases, to several children. And it was painful. Yeah, thank you. I got an amen there. I love it. It was painful. But was it worth it? It was, wasn't it? When you got through the pain, there was joy. Wasn't there? Joy at the birth of a child. And when we understand the way God works in our lives, when we're in a holding pattern, if you will, if we're in a position of waiting, then God is glorified. And that's our purpose for being here. And then we are relieved. Here's some tips on how to wait expectantly. Remember whose you are. Not so much who you are, but whose you are. To whom do you belong if you're a child of God? God is your Father. The Bible talks about us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We were people who once were no people, and now we are God's people. We belong to God. He's our Father. He is interested in you beyond your ability or mine to understand. He cares for us. Thank Him for that. I take great comfort in knowing this is our God. Maybe even more importantly, is consider the example of Jesus. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, we are commanded to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. You know, Jesus hated the cross. He hated it. But He embraced it for your sake and my sake. We were the joy that was set before Him. He was redeeming us on the cross. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, despising the shame of the cross, so that He could later rise again and ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, consider Him. That means to really ponder Him, especially His work on the cross, who endured this awful treatment at the hands of wicked people. And it was sinners who perpetrated this. But we know in the background, if we were to go to Acts chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, do you know whose plan it was for Jesus to be brutalized through crucifixion, to be humiliated beyond imagination, spit on, mocked? Do you know whose plan that was? It was the plan of God the Father Himself. Acts 2, 20 and 21 are very clear. That was what God did, Father and Son, in order to show His love for us and make a way for us to know Him as our Father. The result of cooperating with God is given to us in the last three lines, or four lines of this text. 
Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Now, this idea of gaining new strength, I can't tell you how excited I was as I did my study for this message. What it literally means, means it, there is an exchange of strength. Does that ring a bell? Whose strength are we given? We don't have any power in ourselves. We saw that earlier in the passage. Who gives us the necessary strength to live this life, to wait on God, to be ministering in the time of our waiting? There's this exchange of Jesus' strength for my weakness. J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, many think one of the greatest, probably the top four or five missionaries in the history of the world. He called the Christian life the exchange life. My sin and my death for Jesus' life and His perfection. This is what happens when someone is saved. This is who we are. And the traits of Christ are transferable. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 that the Lord has granted us His precious and magnificent promises For by them we may become partakers, listen, of the divine nature. We're not little gods, but we are the receptacle of the one true God. He lives in us when we trust Him, when we're born again, when we receive Him into our lives. Think about old Joshua, 85 years old. That's a great story, isn't it? He was senile, we think, when we read it. He's 85, somebody's 85 in here, and I'm not calling you senile if you are. Okay. But you think, this guy's, I mean, come on. He says, as I was on the day when Moses sent me to spout the land, I was 40 years old. Forty-five years later, as my strength was then, so it is now. I want the toughest place in Judah, Hebron. And God gave it to him. He says, I'm fighting ready. Do you think he was? Absolutely. The same strength he had when he went as a spy at the prime age of 40 was that strength then. It was the Spirit of God. If we were to go to the book of Judges, we'll see what the book of Judges says. It says that this man, Caleb, had a different spirit, the Spirit of God. Thank God. When we admit our limits and ask for God's strength, God supplies what we need. Only when we do that. There's got to be this exchange of truth. Lord, I can't do it. He says, finally, you understand. I can do it. I can do it through you. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Mike Woods. But through Christ, you can do whatever He gives you to do. I think of Paul who wrote those words in Philippians. He was a man who was a prisoner. He was in chains. He was on death row. And he says to those Philippians, Christians, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear to all the people in this city of Rome, especially to those who are in the household of Caesar. How did believers become part of the 
top guard force of Caesar. Well, a lot of those guards went and they guarded Paul. There was a change of the guard several times a day. And Paul just didn't sit there twiddling his thumbs. He was waiting, wasn't he? He was in God's waiting room for months. He was expecting to be killed. But he didn't waste the opportunity. What did he do? He preached the gospel to them. And they were saved. Look, if you're in God's waiting room, have you ever stopped to think how this is not a common way of speaking anymore, but we would call people who serve us at a restaurant our waiter. Correct? Do you know what do waiters do? They serve. That's what they do. And that's what we are to do as we wait. We're there to serve the Lord in those circumstances which are difficult because God will bring people to us. Paul couldn't go anywhere. He was accustomed to going all over the world to preach the gospel. But he had to settle for being there. And it made a difference in the highest place in the society of the Roman Empire, Caesar's household. Our renewal is not, it will express itself in spiritual progress. Let's look at these last three lines. They will mount up with wings like eagles. That's speaking of the miraculous, of course. And by the way, if you're able to come to grips with this message from the Lord, not from me, but in this text of Scripture, that we're not to complain, we're to cooperate, and there'll be an exchange of strength, His strength for our weaknesses. It's miraculous, isn't it? They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But it's a great run. We're told that we're to run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. Getting rid of those things that weight us down. The sin that so easily encumbers We want to be able to say at the end of our lives what Paul said, I have finished the race. You know how he was able to say that? Because a large portion of his life was taken up. We might say eaten up. That's a wrong way to look at it in waiting. God uses waiting to conform us to the image of His Son. Let's pray together. Father, we are here this morning. Each one of us has our own story about waiting. And we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to not forget this lesson and that we would give you full access to the control room of our lives. If you're in a waiting pattern, would you just say to the Lord, Lord, I need you. I'm sorry, Lord, I may have misread you or... I complained against you. Forgive me, Lord. Please give me your strength. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.